Hello, I'm Martin Lane and welcome to Cannabis, the podcast about the business of cannabis. We inform, educate and connect Australia's legal cannabis sector, bringing you exclusive interviews with the industry's top leaders in Australia and beyond. Coming up on today's show... Why are so many Australians still sourcing cannabis on the black market? Will down scheduling change anything for patients? The polls are too close to call in New Zealand. And how cannabis is just what the vet ordered. So, welcome to the Cannabis Podcast, where we discuss the big issues in the Australian cannabis industry. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. Joining me this week are Cannabis Commissioning Editor and Podcast Producer, Josie Tutty. Hello. Cannabis Chief Correspondent, Steve Jones. Hello. And I'm delighted to welcome two new guests to the podcast. First up, we have our newly installed Editor-at-Large and Medical Cannabis Industry Expert, Rhys Cohen. Hello. And digital content producer, Emma Castle. Hello. Rhys, let's, uh, let's start with you. You've been analysing the 2019 National Drug Strategy Household Survey for us and the 97% of Australians who still source their medical cannabis from the black market. What did you find out? Yeah, it's really interesting because this particular survey is the most comprehensive and, and detailed survey that's ever been conducted in Australia about the extent and nature of medical cannabis use in the community. And the key takeaways for me were, you know, first of all, there are about 570,000 Australians who said they used cannabis for medical reasons at least some of the time in the last 12 months. And then within that group, there were about 170,000 people who said they used cannabis for exclusively medical purposes, which is quite a few. Um, But it's estimated currently that only around 20% of Australians are being prescribed a medical cannabis product today. So there's quite a big gap between uh, legal and and unprescribed uh, use of cannabis in the community. So, you know, even four years after legalization, an overwhelming majority of people are still using the black market. Um, But what's really interesting is when we compare those people who say their cannabis use is medical with people who say their cannabis use is not medical, uh, there are some really stark differences. So, the self-declared medical cannabis users, they're more likely to be living in a poor area, Uh, they're more likely to be older and living with a health condition, and they're also more likely to be using oral oil products instead of dried flower products. And what that shows us is that there's a very distinct subsection of cannabis users who look and act quite differently from your average cannabis user. Uh, And they really do need quite a bit of help if we ever expect them to transition to the legal market, Um, especially considering these people are living in, you know, poorer areas, are less able to access health services. And we know that for the legal market, those are some of the key barriers to access. And interesting that um, as we record this podcast, we are waiting on the um, to find out what where the TGA landed on down scheduling CBD and whether it's going to achieve anything in terms of that patient access to legal cannabis you're talking about. As I say, I think that that decision's due tomorrow, um, so we're speculating as we record this. But Steve, you've spoken to a few people in the industry who think the whole thing could be a red herring. Yeah, very much so. Uh, when it was first mooted that, that CBD could be down scheduled and become available through pharmacies without prescription, stories soon began popping up in the mainstream media that uh, the shelves in chemists would instantly be awash with medicinal CBD products. But the reality is that won't be the case. 
The issue is that all Schedule 3 drugs must be registered on the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods, the ARTG. And to get on that register, they must be evaluated by the TGA for quality, safety and efficacy. So manufacturers must provide evidence that it works. And at such low doses, it's questionable whether that can be done, certainly not for a specific um, condition. Now, a couple of firms I spoke to are confident that they can do that. But for those who don't have the necessary data, they do face a long and and very expensive process in getting evidence together. Um, However, this is where it gets a little complex, I guess. It, It may be that CBD becomes listed on the ARTG rather than registered. So you have listed medicines and registered medicines. Listed medicines are not assessed for efficacy and they can only make low level health claims. Even so, there must still be evidence that a listed medicine does what it says it will. Uh, The medicinal cannabis industry, Australia, so the industry body, they formed a dedicated committee to ensure that Schedule 3 CBD products don't simply become, you know, another high-cost supplement. So there is real concern that this downscheduling will do little, if anything, to make medicinal cannabis um, in any meaningful way more accessible. Um, Reese, what, what's your take on this issue? Yeah, it is interesting. And, and just to touch on that point you made about listing, um, my understanding is that for a product to be listed instead of registered on the ARTG, first of all, it needs to be removed from the drug schedules um, pretty much entirely. Um, so, you know, we're moving towards that potentially in a long-term direction, but uh, there's no opportunity to list products yet as far as the legislation goes today. But really something's got to give, right? Like either the regulators have got to recognize that the daily dose limits, which they've uh, recommended to be only up to 60 milligrams a day, that they're too restrictive and to increase them quite significantly. Uh, or they have to recommend a much yeah lower schedule or, or to take the drugs off the schedule and, and allow companies to list them so that they don't require to prove efficacy. Because if we don't see one or both of those things happen, and the proposal as it stands go through, goes through, it'll just end up sending a really strong signal to the community that, hey, guess what? Like, you should be entitled to purchase finished dose form CBD products from pharmacies, uh, but you can't. Uh, and, and that'll be a real gift to the black market. Um, it'll give people the impression that they are entitled to these products that aren't made available to them. Uh, and I suspect it will also lead to some... Uh, even more compounding of non-GMP CBD preparations by pharmacists. So that's a a pathway that's available, you know, to access some products without prescription. But it sort of circumvents a lot of the quality standards that that we that we appreciate about the medical cannabis system in Australia. Okay, well, as I say, the inter the TGA's interim decision on downscheduling is due to be announced on September the 9th. and you can read that story and much more besides at cannabis.com.au. And make sure you s- subscribe to our news letter to receive all the latest Australian cannabis news and analysis direct to your inbox every Thursday. Now, things are getting a little tense in New Zealand, where polls suggest the delayed referendum on the legalisation of cannabis is too close to call. Josie, what's happening across the ditch? Yeah, so the cam- the um, referendum, which is due to be decided on 17th of October this year, is currently at a stalemate with several polls suggesting that it's essentially split entirely down the middle. Um, a poll from Horizon Research found 49.5% for and 49.5% against. So 
I mean, essentially 50-50. So just to give a quick recap, the bill that is being proposed includes some provisions, including the minimum purchase and possession will be 20 years old. Um, It will allow an eligible person to purchase and possess up to 14 grams of dried cannabis per day. It will also allow eligible people to grow up to two cannabis plants for personal use on their own property and up to a maximum of four plants per household. And it also includes a ban on marketing and advertising cannabis products. So while the referendum is technically non-binding, the current government is expected to legalise the recreational use of cannabis if it's re-elected on the same day and the vote passes. So this um, this referendum is going along with the general election as well. So Jacinda Ardern has been quite quiet on her stance despite a challenge from national leader Judith Collins. She essentially saying that um, she doesn't believe she can really say either way because, you know, depending on which way the vote goes she wants to be able to fully put her weight behind whatever the public decide and she feels like if she says which way she leans then that's obviously going to um, impact that quite a bit Um, assuming of course she wins the election which is yeah so that underlying this whole thing is is really it's it's if that happens this goes through so still a pretty good still a pretty good bet I think isn't she yeah Yeah. I mean people like her I think so (laughs) You know, I'm not an expert on New Zealand politics, but I think it's safe to say people like Jacinda Ardern. Um, yeah, so the the other thing, I mean, it's is you probably would expect this, but the research found that 18 to 44 year olds are most supportive of a yes vote, while 65 to 74 year olds are most opposed. So yeah, that's pretty much what's been going on over there. Now it's interesting, Reese. I wouldn't mind getting your take on this. If you look at what happened in Canada when um, recreational cannabis was legalised, it, it didn't necessarily prove to be a good thing for the for the medical cannabis industry, did it? Oh, I mean that's debatable. I think what we saw in Canada was that a whole lot of you know all the oxygen in the room basically got got sucked into the recreational space. So that was one of the unfortunate uh, drawbacks of recreational legalization in Canada was a lot of the money and the attention went to recreational cannabis enterprises instead of developing new medical you know therapeutics. But it, it's a bit of a, a tricky one because we're not really comparing apples with apples here. Because remember in Canada, you know, it's a different system. Doctors don't prescribe your medication. They effectively just give you permission to purchase medication from producers. And and that experience is quite different. I think I, I would argue that the Australian framework, for all its many faults, it, it looks and feels a lot more legitimate, uh, looks and feels a lot more legitimately medical to both patients and doctors. So, you know, some, some of the more seriously ill patients, I, I think, would likely stick with the medical system rather than buy their multiple sclerosis or epilepsy or cancer pain medication from a pot shop. Having said that, you know, if our hypothetical recreational system was able to provide products at a more affordable price than our medical system, I think that would probably be enough to tip the scales. And yeah, look, this is a really interesting point and loops back to your point before about, um, you know, the analysis you did around access and those people who are, you know, likely to be poor, likely to be older, likely to be suffering from a medical condition. So they're currently sourcing their medical cannabis from the black market. Is that what's happening effectively? Almost all of them are 
accessing their cannabis from the black market. And about half of them were accessing it through a friend or a family member. So they, they may not even be directly interacting with um, a dealer or, or, a, or a producer themselves, um, but through, you know, social networks, I guess. So you've got a situation where, you know, down scheduling from we've just heard from Steve and, and given the low doses, etc., may not make much of a difference. Full legalisation, I appreciate what you're saying about the Canadian situation being different. But um, if it's not full legalisation and it's not down scheduling in, in its current form, what's the what's the kind of silver bullet, do you think? That's a difficult question to put you on the spot with. <laughs> what's the one thing we can do to fix medical cannabis in Australia? That's it, yeah. Um, I'd like that in a sentence, please. <laughs> mm, um, um, uh, time. Uh, I think right. I think time is the answer to that question. I think you know so long so long as we don't end up allowing Australia to become the dumping ground for everyone else's poorly regulated cannabis medicines, which is you know ho- hopefully not going to be the case, but it, it's a distinct possibility, then that will give our local producers enough time and, and breathing room to to get their feet under them. The scale of the cultivation and manufacturing operations that are planned for these Australian companies are significant. And, you know, if they're able to, to execute on them, I think they will pr- end up producing products that are much, much more affordable than, than the current product suites are. Um, but that's not necessarily a given you know this is a, a ticking time bomb for some of these organizations um, there's a limited amount of time in which they need to start generating revenue um, and that's uh, very difficult for a number of reasons Reese, just going back to, to something you said just just a moment ago that that australia shouldn't or can't be the, the dumping ground for sort of for, for substandard products isn't that already happening i keep hearing that you know the Australian product is is got to be very high quality GMP standard, whereas the some of the imported product doesn't have to hit those high standards. So therefore, the local market does have some some I wouldn't say inferior product, but but not perhaps not such a high quality as it as it should be or could be. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's possible that is happening. The challenge is we simply don't know the extent to which it may be happening. So the regulations require all products to meet similar quality standards. The only difference is if your product is made in Australia, you have to verify that locally and demonstrate that through uh, routine batch testing. While if you're uh, sending a product to Australia, you only need to declare that your product complies. And then if it turns out to not be compliant, that's on you and that's a big legal risk. But in the meantime, there are 130, 150 different products now available for doctors to prescribe. Probably, you know, over 100 of those are are imported in a finished dose form from overseas. The regulators aren't putting the resources in and probably aren't inclined to, to, to micromanage uh, the sector to such an extent that they would require, you know, mandatory local batch testing for imported products. That's probably something I would support. I don't think it's reasonable to hold local producers to a different uh, burden of, of, of proof to to imported products. Emma, you've been writing about separation anxiety this week and how CBD can help your pet cope with you going back to work after COVID-19. What's the story? Yes. So, um, 
We have actually noticed that on Google Trends, there's an increased, um, there's increasing searches for CBD oil for pets, uh, because I guess a lot of people have invested in, um, in particularly dogs over, um, during the COVID lockdown. And, um, and yeah, those dogs have never been left alone at home. So, um, I guess people are kind of looking into ways to calm the farm at home while they go off to work again. Yeah, it's interesting. My son has recently acquired a beagle ear, which is a half beagle, half um, cavalier, and he's easily the uh, the most cared for person in the house. Um, and so, so just to be clear, CBD for pets is illegal in Australia, but hemp is is not. Um, and you, you've been chatting to people like Campow, who presumably are looking at um, the export market as the place where they will be able to sell their CBD products for for pets. Oh, yeah, definitely. They're actually going through the process of um, getting approval for a CBD product um, in the US, like so through the Food and Drug Administration in the States. Mm. Um, so that they're kind of going through that process now. So maybe a year away. Um, and that one is um, actually for joint pain. So um, for, I guess, for aging dogs, um, yeah, there's lots of arthritis problems. So that one is actually a pain relief product, which will be an oral um, supplement. Um, but they're actually also working on a topical treatment for uh, dermatitis. And that is going through the approval process here in Australia at the moment. So um, yeah, so that that's called Dermacan. Um, and so that'll actually be probably the second product that CanPower is going to release because they've already... Um, got one product on the market called Micromax, which is a joint health nutraceutical that was in, done, um, created in partnership with CSIRO. So, um, yeah, so look, the pet market is is a growing uh, kind of proposition. Even elephants are getting in on the act with keepers at Poland's Warsaw Zoo planning to give its three African elephants CBD after the death of one of their cohort in March left the others in mourning. Steve, you used to keep chickens, I believe. Did you ever slip a cheeky hash cake in their feed? Oh, yeah, now, now and again. I mean, they were beautiful. Now and again, <laughs> now and again. I was only joking. <laughs> yeah, so was I, actually. So, so was I. <laughs> No, they're happy little chicks. We did a bit of bit of corn and some ice. That's what that was their favorite uh, favorite bit of bit of nosh. Right. It's also, I think it's actually quite interesting because I mean, I read that news story as well, and immediately I was you know on Twitter asking everyone that I could, you know, what dose? Like, what dose do you give an anxious elephant? What like you know? We don't even know the we don't a even know dose. the appropriate dose for dose. humans. But <laughs> you know? how, how do you know you... when they're officially no longer mourning? Like right? do they just sort of perk up their their trunk yeah. a bit or something. A- a- apparently, they get quite. They get. I, I've read a lot about this because I was intrigued <laughs> too. And apparently, they yes they they get quite angry with each other. So once they sort Aww. of start to chill out, that's when you know that the the, the right dose has been found. <laughs> Amazing. What if they chill out too jump, much? <laughs> Josie, perk up their trunk. Is that seriously? <laughs> um, technical and term. Also, if you want to have some fun and you're a bit bored, maybe search elephants doing some painting on YouTube because it is very fun and you can spend a lot of hours watching that. Okay, well, I think that's definitely all we have time for this week. We'll be back very soon, but in the meantime, come and join in the conversation at cannabis.com.au. It just remains for me to thank Josie. Thank you. Steve. Thank you. Reese. Thank you. 
and Emma. Goodbye. And you for joining us. I'm Martin Lane, and we'll see you next time on the Cannabis Podcast. Bye.